31 stab wounds. What was it? Ice pick. Speak to him, Miss Catherine Tremell, please. Is she a suspect? She's a suspect. I wanted to write a book about the murder of a retired rock and roll star. You know how she does the boyfriend? With an ice pick. She intended the book to be her alibi. I picked him up, and I had sex with him. You didn't feel anything for him, you just had sex with him for your book. In the beginning. Then I got to like what he did for me. You like playing games, don't you? It's nice. You've got no physical evidence. She's lying. What's your new book about? A detective who falls for the wrong woman. What happens? She kills him. Stay away from her! You are out of control, Kurt. You won't learn anything I don't want you to know. She knew I'd say she did it, and she knew that nobody would buy it. She is screwing with your head, Nick! She knows things about me that I only told you. How's it feel to kill someone? You tell me. She manipulates people. Freeze! How much did she pay you? So basic instinct. Basic Instinct, 1992, a violent police detective investigates a brutal murder that might involve a manipulative and seductive novelist. Directed by Paul Verhoeven, uh, Verhoeven, Verhoeven of Total Recall and Robocop and Starship Troopers, a Dutch man, very uh, famous for being kind of eccentric mm-hmm. and weird. And we talked about it last movie also. It's his movie too. I think we might have done Starship Troopers on here at one point yeah yeah so we've done uh, quite a bit what else have we missed from him i feel like we could we robocop we could do robocop okay yeah, that's um, a good movie let's take a look at his filmography real quick that's gotta be his I, biggest one but yeah i'd also be interested to see a lot of these i've a lot of these i don't even know uh, there's like way more than i thought there was oh showgirls obviously i've never seen showgirls but i knew that one okay um hollow man black book tricked ellie Bendetta. Uh, I don't know what any of those last few were. Huh. And then there's like a bunch in the like pre-RoboCop. RoboCop is like the breakout thing for him. Clearly, it's like the biggest thing on this list. I love that movie. I I was I put it on a while back and was just amazed at how bloody it is. But not all surprising when you consider yeah the rest of the movies. Yeah, all of his movies are, are like that. I think that at one point I thought I had seen enough of his movies and I saw RoboCop enough times. It's one of the main movies that I associate with just ultra violence in the 80s. Like, he, he specifically has, like, a lot of super gory violent stuff in his movies. and He's not alone in that in the 80s, but he certainly has his own flavor of it. Mm-hmm. But when I would watch RoboCop as a kid, I'm like, this is just what the movies are in the 80s. <laughs> And as I'm watching it in like the late nineties. So what, what I think that you were talking about basic instinct, what brought you to watch it? Um, it was, uh, why did we want to watch it? It's cause it came up on the Sopranos. I think mean, Christopher was watching it in his apartment. That's right. You had said that he was trying to watch the chair scene. They were right? just like on the chair scene. Yeah. 
wasn't clear if yeah. he had even seen is that like part of the joke that like the rest of the movie isn't very salacious and it's it's kind of like a i don't know not like the most exciting movie in the world it's kind of slow and yeah it's just got it's got like vibes throughout so <laughs> I, I don't know if like it the crowd i don't know if the crowd that shows up for the chair scene is exactly the audience for the rest of the movie so i don't know if part of the joke is that you're just would, looking at the chair scene i would bet that that is the case i would bet that most people's experience with this movie is like if they want if they someone had it on vhs was literally just fast forwarding to that scene trying to pause it at the right moment and then that's it like there's no yeah. point in watching the rest of the movie which isn't entirely true because it is like i mean it's a pretty raunchy movie the rest of the way and it's sharon stone i think that if you're a, a young man in the the 90s when this came out yeah 92 uh you're a straight young man uh you're heavily interested in in the rest of this movie for sure but not uh, that michael douglas is not bringing it also because that guy is very this is like some of the youngest leanest handsomest michael douglas that i've seen yeah yeah he's so unlikable uh, <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think that he, i think that he's kind of great in this movie because you know it's like a noir movie at least that's very what, much so. that's what it's yeah that's what it feels like almost too much and the the gumshoe like grizzled detective character is really played to a t with this guy all of the the qual- like the unlikable qualities of the noir detective from like older movies mm-hmm. is just like cranked up to 11 in this guy like he's unlikable addictive uh, abusive like self-deprecating to like the worst degree uh he's he's just like the worst he's not really someone that you're rooting for Mm-mm. in the movie i think i agree i mean isn't the whole thing that he kind of becomes like the sharon stone character by the end like they do this thing like where he starts saying lines that she said earlier in the movie and he kind of like starts becoming they start becoming a, each other in a way yeah yeah i know i, I want to talk about that because i think you could take it a few ways because he certainly starts to become the character in the book or uh, he was the character in the book the whole time like while i was watching it 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 does a clear thing where it connects his character with the character in the book it doesn't like hide that at all where another movie might and i don't know when i was watching it i would I was getting this sense that like Sharon Stone was this like supernatural kind of character uh-huh. that could like I don't know manifest reality by writing yeah, it down, yeah. or she's like a god of some kind. Which Just I think like that Will Ferrell movie. Oh yeah, it's exactly stranger like than that. fiction. That's right. That's exactly what that movie is. Yeah, but that makes sense if that was like literally true in this case because Michael Douglas's character just like seems like a character out of a, a crime novel from yeah the 50s or 60s or something he's an archetype it doesn't have a lot of like personality Here, to him really l- let me ask you this question if we're gonna dive into this uh fun little conspiracy theory right away do you think that that the world uh like stranger than or not unlike stranger than fiction that the world that michael douglas lives in is purely like of a Sharon Stone's construction or does she like the stranger than fiction author have the ability to just manipulate 
his world. Like that he, she's just controlling him as a as a puppet essentially, mm. or is is she just like God and she's like living in her own little novel world and doing stuff in it? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think the world is real, but I think that Michael Douglas's character, like, feels to me like just a novel character come to realization in the real world. So she seems real, but he doesn't. Right. Interesting. Okay. Because like, I feel like the... we need to contextualize the plot a little more. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. That Michael Douglas is a detective. That's established in San Francisco. Just talking about California movies. This takes place in your neighborhood. There's an inciting incident of a a rich dude who gets murdered by an anonymous blonde. That's uh-huh. like uh, you see that the woman has blonde hair, um, and she ties him up on the bed, BDSM style, and then kills him with an ice pick in his bed. Gruesome. Michael Douglas gets gruesome, gruesome, gruesome. Lots of blood. Um, I think that don't they show like the ice pick like going into like his eye or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hardcore. I don't think we can review the movie on the podcast visually because we'll just our video get taken down right away. <laughs> but she, uh, some anonymous blonde, kills him. It's clear from the beginning that uh, Sharon Stone is a person of interest, but also her lesbian lover uh, is a person of interest. Kind of a doppelganger to also her, blonde. which we yeah, which we can talk about. Because uh, that seems like that's, you know, not a coincidence. And then, like the regular noir pattern, it follows, uh, or Michael Douglas starts to fall for Sharon Stone, who is an author who writes crime novels. And her crime novels have, I think, it's established in the character that her crime novels have this historic ability to sort of mirror, like, real-world events that she's mm-hmm. involved with. And as... Uh, as uh, Michael Douglas gets closer and closer to what the truth is, several more people die, and Sharon Stone seems to be somehow connected to all of it. What's her character's mm-hmm. name? Uh, but the the movie ultimately ends kind of ambiguous as to who the actual murderer was, but you can draw your own conclusions. Right, right. I read some stuff that was straight up saying that the ending that like, definitively that it was her by the end but i remember reading the ending that's what wikipedia says yeah yeah wikipedia but. says that according to the plot sharon stone is the killer uh-huh. because <laughs> like at the, the end like, she has an ice pick i'm like okay well if that's right. gonna be like your that's not gonna hold yeah. the court I, i'm with you though because i read that yeah and i was like i don't know if it's that cut and dry i mean it's nice to read that on a wikipedia page and feel like feel like you have some sense of clarity but i ultimately don't believe that yeah or at least like she may be the killer but i don't i'm not using that final shot as the the damning evidence right right yeah uh, I agree. so to so to uh contextualize for the listener trying to be better about that uh whoever you are uh, the hi her lesbian lover dies uh, a girlfriend dies uh seemingly all the suspects are dead um, and I think that they actually, f- they set it up to where Michael Douglas's ex-girlfriend or current girlfriend or ex-wife or something who has her own kind of twists and turns in the plot. Mm-hmm. The movie sort of presents you with like the most, like sort of an absurd amount of damning evidence, which I think is by itself suspicious, mm-hmm. uh, that she has to be the killer, his ex-wife. And then you're like, okay, that's, that's the killer. 
case closed and then Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone are free to continue their sexual relationship and right at the end a the camera tilts down to the side of the bed where there is an ice pick um, and she made this motion toward it uh, just moments before so the movie yeah. teases you that maybe she is maybe she is the killer the conversation leading up to that final scene was funny like Michael Douglas like throwing out the idea of doing the traditional marriage kids thing with her what does she say she's just like i don't like that like i don't like kids or something and that's like the moment where she uh i I think like reaches to the side of her bed or something and then michael douglas is like well you know that's that's fine i don't care you know whatever floats your boat and then she's like okay and is happy again so like the implication was i think that if she didn't kill him because he agreed with her or something or if he would have continued to push the kids thing that he would have she would have murdered him right then and there i mean i have a a topic for discussion i really like the michael douglas character and his backstory coming into the movie of um evidently he was involved in a shooting where he fired his gun and i think accidentally hit a civilian i don't remember if they died or not yeah he killed he killed uh, several tourists several several how the Um, fuck did that happen I don't know if the movie ever explains it, but like, it's clearly like a cloud that follows Michael Douglas personally, but also uh-huh. Uh-huh. professionally. Like everybody is sort of kind of waiting to take his gun and badge away again because he's kind of proven himself to be a liability because of that yeah. incident. Like he has to do. There are scenes where he's talking to this therapist, psychologist, whatever, uh, at at the police department, and this is also the the girlfriend the ex-girlfriend that's important to the plot which is fun because they don't reveal that right away he he at first is just talking to her as a shrink and then he says something about uh, like when we used when we used to be together when we used to date or something but he has this cloud hanging over him and like it may be the implication is that like he may be a hot-headed potentially bloodthirsty cop uh, with no morals and Mm -hmm. as the movie progresses and like crazy stuff starts happening because of Sharon Stone presumably she sets him up and makes these situations up that incriminate him further so she makes it seem like just one example uh the guy's boss gets killed just shot you know straight up murder uh and this happened right after he got in a big fight with his boss at the office and like punched him or something and got thrown out of the office so obviously people think that he's doing it and so throughout the movie this character is just like getting his reputation just trashed for these reasons and you see him slowly kind of separate from the department i mean i think for half of the movie he's not even working as a cop like i think he gets uh how do you say discharged or put on leave or put something. on leave and he's just like yeah. a rogue agent i like that yeah it's uh you said bloodthirsty there's like quite a bit of dialogue between him and Sharon Stone where like the movie sort of teases out that Sharon Stone, I'm just going to keep saying Sharon Stone. I'm not even going to try that her other novels um, represent like there's at least one other one that tells like the story of like the death of her parents Uh huh. where she like killed the parents like in the novel. But like it's apparently generally accepted that it's just a no- a novelization that like her parents death had nothing to do with that mm-hmm. but you know the mo- the movie makes it pretty clear that like maybe she did like her it's suspiciously similar 
Right. And she talks to Michael Douglas a lot about uh, killing, like the feeling of killing. Talks about, you know, there are people who have killed and there are people who who haven't. And, like, it, it changes you fundamentally. That there's, there's two types of people in the world, like, uh, killers and, and not. They, she seems to, like, think about the world as, like, a prey and predator sort of relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think that she uses the shooting incident from uh, his past to make that connection to find like a level of camaraderie with him where she like because if if you accept the fact that she did kill her parents and she likes killing people and that she gets some sort of basic instinct satisfaction out of it that she relates to michael douglas in this way and uh, is trying to sort of coax that similar sort of bloodthirstiness out of him like she wants Mm. him to like it like she likes it and you you can kind of get a sense that he starts to sort of become that way. Like he doesn't, when they have those conversations, he doesn't automatically just reject that idea. No, I'm not like a bloodthirsty cop. He doesn't say that. He, you can see that he like considers it. He considers the way that he feels about killing someone. Yeah, he, he's very complicit in like what she brings out of him. He wants it. And, and it's kind of tied up with like him wanting her sexually yeah but at the same time he's also becoming more violent and more hot-headed throughout the movie it all seems kind of connected like the the title of the movie is basic instinct where animals what do, what do animals do they survive and procreate they kill so it seems like sharon stone's character takes has this like philosophy has a similar philosophy to that like about the world how like people are just animals and like you're foolish if you don't embrace uh the parts of you that are an animal mm-hmm. um, is the basic instinct the sex drive or the murder drive that's the, that's the question yeah could, could be either could be both could, could be, be both. both sharon stone thinks it's both but yeah but there's three books that sharon stone's character wrote that have like real life parallels there's the one with the parents which is the most believable that it's just a novelization of real world events you know makes sense uh the second one was something about her professor or she had like that professor at berkeley who died and then the third is the the more relevant one i think it was a separate novel but yeah the ice pick is it not the one that she's working on right now i don't think or is so. she working on the fourth one i think she's working on the fourth one that involves michael douglas okay and it kind of like a, a funny thing is that you know it's this novel that she's working on with a character michael douglas that's in the book and they're kind of like teasing that it's a question of like do the real world events influence the novel or is the novel kind of like influencing the real world so that at some point in the movie they're like well we yeah. don't know how this book ends right and at a certain point in the movie she says like actually i finished the book which is interesting right because it's like oh what did you what did you write you know stranger than fiction style it, she kind of becomes like a cleric like a clairvoyant just like setting the events that are to follow there's like a scene where you see the her printing the book she said she finished it and she's printing it at her home it's funny because she's like a rich person so it's like implied that only like rich people have those like dot matrix like printers like in their house you, you know those like types of printers the one that make that really like awful sound uh-huh, and everything uh-huh. comes out on one page that you can With like the perforated edges yeah. yeah yeah 
she's printing that and there's like a close-up shot of one of the lines and it says like uh the detective finds his partner like murdered in an elevator and that's like a direct uh prediction for what happens next oh like no way did. that was written it was written down and it's it happens before the the whole sequence where the partner goes into the apartment and oh uh, is wow killed. i missed that and so you could interpret that a couple ways you know it could be that she's like clairvoyant could be that she's some sort of stranger than fiction god that can just uh, create reality by writing it or she's the murderer she wrote it that way and that she later just orchestrated the, the murder exactly as she wrote it down mm-hmm. in that beginning scene did you think that was sharon stone to begin with i knew that i was being manipulated so i didn't i thought maybe but I knew that, like, not showing her face and that it's most likely going to be, like, a noir opening murder scene. Uh-huh. That, like, it was purposely, like, you know, her face was hidden and it was ambiguous. Okay. So. I totally misjudged. I just thought it was Sharon Stone. So, like, later okay. on when uh, when the doppelganger girlfriend shows up, the only thing that happened is that I got confused and I thought she was Sharon Stone. <laughs> like, that's all that. Which is not an interesting movie experience that, that that I had. Yeah. It was just dumb. So from the beginning, I'm like, oh, Sharon Stone killed that guy. And then it took me a <laughs> long time to back away from that and be like, oh, no, actually, that's still an open question. You were like, case is cracked. Like, I got to figure it out. I'm not even five minutes into this movie. Uh, that's really funny. Uh, it turns out it is Sharon Stone playing that oh scene. the the actual person on camera is yeah. sharon stone you read that yeah well of course it is i mean uh the, the main uh problem with this movie i think is that it spends quite a lot of time uh gawking at uh sharon stone's uh physical body mm-hmm. which i'm pretty sure was something that verhoven like pressured her into with this and possibly the other movie that she's in total recall oh yeah Um, is that something that's written about somewhere i remember reading that somewhere that that doesn't surprise me at all if if it is true i think that this i think that this movie is not a i think it loses points for that like critically Uh and among uh among most people who have seen it that like for the same reason we were discussing at the beginning that like most young men were probably interested in this movie that um it's probably why it's not liked by many others yeah well I, i'm definitely sure that like he knew he was making a, a hyper sexual movie and he knew like that he was creating this kind of spectacle i mean i don't know what he did in the terms of the production of the movie or how he handled the nudity or whatnot i heard somewhere that and i, I don't know if you read this also but that the scene with the leg crossing was something that sharon stone did more so for the purpose of like throwing off the other actors hmm. you know of just like forget the film just her and the other people in the room with her like a way of her kind of uh method mm-hmm. acting and actually trying to like sexually yeah uh hypnotize them or something yeah yeah for yeah. the sake of the scene as opposed to something that was i don't know is this is this ringing a bell what i'm talking about kind of i, I remember like hearing i remember hearing something like this that that memory feels a lot older than what i just said which was i think that that scene specifically is where i've read that verhoven like pressured her into doing 
something uh-huh. like that versus it being on her own volition maybe got a little it, bit of truth maybe a little bit of truth to both who knows um, like i think i think maybe the pressure could be and this is just conjecture of like for hoven being like oh we're gonna use that that's gonna be kind of like a big part of the movie that's gonna be the part that like everybody talks about and like looks at and whereas like maybe she wasn't so comfortable yeah, with, with yeah. Uh, so much focus being put on that and so prominently displayed because you know you can cut around you don't have to be such explicit in the way you present the shot in the final cut so i can see how like yeah somebody wouldn't like that yeah yeah who knows are you surprised that this movie was so like controversial and generated so much buzz at the time uh, honestly i'm not super aware of the controversy around it other than what we were just talking about with sharon stone i mean i'm just vaguely aware but just the the fact that it was such a spectacle because of how sexually explicit it was it's extremely i mean i'm not surprised by that at all it's uh, really uh, i am no. surprised which part is super sexually explicit i mean there are sex scenes in the movie i mean they're pretty explicit sex scenes as far as I mean, sex scenes go um matthew skin in like a i mean there's like i feel like you are like inches away from seeing like full penetration in one of them at least one of them if not more it just leaves like very little to the imagination it's it's basically like soft it's like softcore porn which i think especially at the time like that was pretty insane and i, I mean, that's I think what i think I, it is I think that movies back then weren't so sexually explicit, but since then things have become so much more sexually explicit. Oh yeah. What I'm getting at is that it kind of like was underwhelming to me. Well, I mean, certainly by today's standards, it's not a sexual spectacle like at all, but I definitely right. watched it. I watched it in the, uh, the context of a 1992 viewer who's like seeing and also, like, Sharon Stone is, you know, I think regarded as, like, one of the hottest people alive. So that, like, added to the the billableness of that spectacle. But, yeah, I think it's just uh, for the time, it's it's insane. And it's still pretty, like, pretty intense for any, like, any time. But it definitely, like, falls by the wayside for modern movies and yeah. everything you have access to on the Internet nowadays. But Wait, what do you mean? I don't know. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Is there porn on the internet? What? Uh, I, I think that's a, a joke from Family Guy. Quagmire's the, like, wait, there's porn on the internet? And then like the, the next scene, the, he has like the, the very buff forearm. That sounds like a, a Family Guy joke. Uh, I have a story about when I used to work at a, the movie theater. Do you remember the movie Funny People? Uh, it's like... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Apatow, Judd. Yeah, and Adam Sandler is uh-huh, in it. Uh-huh. And I think Seth Rogen? Yeah, it's like kind of a like a somber Adam Sandler movie, mm-hmm. um, as far as Sandler movies go. And there was a, a matinee showing of it, and a, an older couple, like in their, I don't know, sixties maybe, went and saw it. And they came out maybe halfway through, and there's some like some explicit sex scenes in that movie. I mean, uh-huh. honestly, that movie is more tame than this movie basic instinct and uh, in the uh, in the movie theater that old couple came out halfway through and were incredibly mad Aww. they were were yelling at me like just a regular employee and demanding their money back and then 
saying that that movie should be rated X, which is reserved for porn. <laughs> hmm. And it's just like an insane, an insane response, like to think about, like just the, that a low level employee has any sort of like say in any of that. <laughs> is it a, you is should it rate, refund them? Uh, I think I did. Yeah. Is um, that fair? When, is that a fair call? Yeah. I mean, it's ultimately like kind of a low risk thing. If people are doing that in droves, that can be a problem. Uh-huh. Um, I think that we had a protocol back then too, where we would just give people like vouchers and I, I either did that or gave them a refund. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but I bet I they walked out pe- during the scene that like Adam Sandler is having sex and the person's asking him to do like dolphin sounds like in the movie. That's exactly the scene I was thinking of. Yeah. 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 In the context of the movie, isn't he, he's like a movie star where his like, most famous role is he's like some sort of dolphin yeah hybrid superhero guy he basically plays himself but anyways that that was funny people yeah so i got a question for you about basic instinct the uh psychologist ex-wife character she strikes me as like kind of suspicious i think that um from the get-go yes because there's that whole revelation uh at the end where they actually knew each other like Sharon Stone and that the psychologist girlfriend knew each other at Berkeley and uh, she was not upfront about that right at first and I think that she knew who Sharon Stone was the whole time but never said anything about it um and I'm pretty sure that that came up and she had some sort of justification for it but regardless it was sort of like a loose excuse it seemed like that's something that you should just say right up front in an ongoing investigation about somebody and then there was the name change she said that she got married and that she took the the guy who she married's like last name but her first name also changed because the guy that she married just called her a different name that's what she said that's why mm-hmm. she changed her first name but that doesn't make any fucking sense like why when you got married, why would you just <laughs> be like, I'm just also going to change my first name because this person like call, calls me this this nickname. And then she also changed her hair, uh, which, you know, is not illegal to do, but does seem weird considering everything else. And then she's yeah. very conveniently like at the in the apartment building when his partner dies. But, you know, that could be the movie manipulating me, too. But I just wanted to talk well, about that- her yeah at that point in the movie they're trying to convince the viewer that sharon stone is really innocent and that it's the psychologist ex-girlfriend who was behind everything around that point you uh you learn that they knew each other that they uh went to berkeley around the same time and then you learn that the therapist person was like obsessed with sharon stone like a star allegedly like allegedly and so it's just it's building this case against her being the guilty party which i mean yeah i mean just i don't know it just it depends like on whether you think that because like we said we we don't we're not considering that the ending is unambiguous it's we think it's ambiguous so the verdict Mm -hmm. is still out that therapist person could be the culprit behind most of the shenanigans going on in the movie or not i mean i don't know or not but but yeah suspicious as hell it's it's funny because even after she dies, she's not absolved of suspicion. 
because you know he shoots her by mistake she thought he thought she was going for a gun um and then he shoots her because she was going after her keys sweet keychain by the way oh, it's yeah? like a, a little bart simpson keychain remember that <laughs> no no oh it's sick dude and Time it's me. i mean you see it earlier in the movie it's like a it's like Chekhov's simpsons keychain that's a common tv trope the uh i thought you were pulling a gun out of your pocket but it's just something else device yeah there's like montages of uh tropes like that on uh, youtube which are really fun to watch sometimes where it's like uh, i think i saw one once that it's like every time in a movie when someone says what are you gonna do shoot me and then that person gets shot <laughs> why but you but you see Just it earlier why. in the movie too so it's not like that comes out of nowhere because that's like pretty like striking like gag to see as far as just pulling keys out of a pocket yeah yeah. um so i they do establish it earlier but you know right after this when they like go into her apartment and dig up all the stuff of the uh i think like magazines or newspaper clippings of sharon stone's character and her being obsessed with various things or people i don't remember exactly what it is but it's basically like they stumble upon like the Unabomber like mother load of evidence, um, completely like damning the psychologist girlfriend person. And I find that the amount and the quality of the the evidence was like in itself suspicious. It seems like it's too much. Like it, it seems like it's too much evidence and like doesn't really seem to fit that character. I don't know. It, it seems like it's something that I, c I could easily believe that it was like planted and she was like framed top to bottom. Yeah. I yeah. believe that Sharon Stone's character is crazy enough to have gone to those lengths to frame that mm -hmm. person. Um, I agree. I agree. I, I think that that's deliberate on the movie's part of, uh, you know, they make you think it's the ex-girlfriend. And then when she like dies, when she gets shot, there's just like a series of evidence that comes out that like the thing she was wearing that got like stolen or whatever. There's just like a series of, of hints that came out that made it seem like it was pretty conclusive that it was her, but too convenient. Hi, Goose. Sorry, my dog came down to visit Ooh. me. I'm here by myself, so it's just me and her. Do you want to say hi? Bring her up. Come here. Wow. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Say hi, Goose. Hey, girl. She's a girl. Yeah, she's a girl. <laughs> hey, girl. You hear Who's that? a good girl? Who's a good girl? Put your headphones on her. She doesn't super like being held. Even though it, she's pretty small and like easy to hold. Any anything, any scene or character in the movie that we didn't talk about that you want to talk about? The the partner getting killed was super gruesome in the elevator. I mean, is it like as as gruesome as the? the murder we see at the beginning i think just about yeah i'm looking at it now i'm at 152 although i'm not quite there yet but it's just another there's something about the ice pick stabbing that is so just gets to me let's see because it's I'm just almost. it's all penetration there's no cutting there's no blade yeah i mean there's that's probably no mistake i mean with how sexually charged the movie is that it's the oh, way yeah. that you kill someone is more of a stabbing, yeah, phallic, uh, phallic sort of weapon. 
And I guess what really gets it about me getting stabbed by an ice pick is that it's the least amount of damage that a stabbing utensil can do. And so mm-hmm. you need to just get stabbed repeatedly. Like, like, like every here, like prison stabbing stories, and it seems like the number of stabs is sometimes ridiculously large. Yeah. Stabbed yeah. 40 times, and you're like, what the hell? Yeah, it's it's it almost. I mean, I'm totally out of my depth here, but it it almost seems like getting stabbed is worse than getting shot. Cause you know, you get shot somewhere. It's usually once. You know, mm-hmm. if because one gunshot will take you down. Yeah. And then you're either like dead, pretty quick, or you know they can fix you or <laughs> whatever. Right. Uh, right. But a stab, it's like the the attack is prolonged. Like you, you keep getting attacked because the uh, one stab will not do anything to you, theoretically. Yeah, I'm definitely way more scared of getting stabbed and shot. Yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm with you there. I think I'm also, there's a there's a separation with a person holding a wielding a gun against you. Mm-hmm. While while you're being stabbed, it's like very personal. I mean, they're like right up in your in your grill, so to speak. And you're struggling with them. Yeah, it's yeah, I don't, yeah. And and maybe you're trying to like get their arm or something, but uh, you're fighting yeah. back. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, I missed this. There's like some evidence in the girlfriend's apartment that's like straight up a photo of Sharon Stone and the uh, psychologist right next to each other in their graduating class. But yeah, it's like a cropped photo where they're just. They're literally standing right next to each other in like the graduate lineup. So, so that's regardless of who the the killer is, is it, it, it? Do you think it's established that the that the uh, therapist lady was a stalker of Sharon Stone? Well, like that that could be true, and Sharon Stone is still the killer. I think it could be. Uh, I had never really thought about it that way. I always kind of thought whoever is the stalker is also the killer, um, because Sharon Stone. Or, like, one of them is confronted with that evidence. They're like, they, so-and-so said you were a stalker. And I, I think it's the girlfriend who says, like, no, she was the stalker. They, like, immediately turn it back around on whoever yeah, the, yeah, ac- yeah. the accuser was. So it really doesn't... I didn't think about that too much because it, it didn't seem like there was any conclusive evidence as to which of them was I doing know. the stalking. That's a great example of the movie, like... That, that like keeps fucking with you the viewer like they have like one scene where it the therapist is talking to michael douglas and she's like oh no sharon stone is crazy like she's making all this up and it's like very convincing like you're convinced as the audience and then michael mm-hmm. douglas goes to talk to sharon stone and sharon stone is like oh she told you i did this and then she like completely convinces you the other way and then you yeah, don't know what yeah. the hell is going on yeah it's it's totally like what total recall does we were talking about last time Ah, yeah, yeah. And same guy, so makes sense. Starship Troopers like similar in that way too. A lot of uh-huh. amb- ambiguity. But yeah, the both both this and uh, Total Recall, it's a lot of whiplash on what you believe. And both movies by the end you're still like, ah, I'm not really sure like what what to believe. Which somehow it does it in like a fun way. And on this movie to a lesser degree, at least with Total Recall, it sort of makes you want to watch it again for total recall i think that that's partially just because arnold is in it and it's like 
<laughs> a fun action movie. This movie is really like horny and has a lot of explicit scenes in it, so that's a reason to revisit it, I guess. But yeah, it does. This movie doesn't have a lot of like draw for me to watch it again. No, I don't even want to watch it a second time because I don't think it's gonna. Well, I think it'd probably be interesting enough, but I don't think I'm gonna get anything too new from it. Yeah, it does. It's not like so draped in mystery that it begs a second viewing. And I don't know. I don't even think that if if the second viewing did like reveal a lot of stuff that I would find it all that interesting. Mm-hmm. I think I got a lot of like the main clues like the first time around and I don't know, frankly I'm just not really interested in like who's the who the killer is. Yeah. Overall, I thought the movie was fun, but fine. Yeah. Here's a, here's a good example. Like Total Recall. I've seen that movie like a dozen times. I still don't know what's going on. I have a pretty good idea of like what I want to be going on or how I choose to believe what's going on but ultimately it's like not sure and uh, I still go back and watch it for that reason this movie does not have the same effect on me like I don't know what's going on at the end of Total Recall and it makes me want to watch it again I don't know what's going on at the end of Basic Instinct but I don't care and I won't be back like the basic plot of the whodunit I didn't really find all that compelling but that being said i did enjoy the movie does that make sense but just not for like the main plot like through line yeah i mean i enjoyed it too like like Uh, once i realized that it was just jerking me around about like oh is it her or is it not and i'm like does it matter right exactly the answer was no and i watched the rest of the movie yeah that's the that's the correct answer Uh, the answer to the the whodunit is it doesn't matter Mm-hmm. I definitely I think the best scene is like the chair scene when she's being interrogated. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, I think it's just like w- with her effect on all of the, the, the men that are interrogating her, you know, the, the using like her sexual energy to to to, to flabbergast everybody. I think that mm-hmm. was like a good example of that. Of um, her just ability to do that. Yeah. 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 Like, a little bit of that was hinted at when they first interacted with her. She's, like, on her porch with a really nice ocean view. Yeah. And they're trying to question her. And she's and they were like, oh, were you in a, a relationship with this man? And she's like, we fucked. And they're like, oh, my. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're, like, they're all kind of, like, taken aback. Um, and then they picked the, the partner guy, like, this kind of, like, very, uh, like, middle America dude. What's his face from Seinfeld? No, no, not Newman. His partner that got like killed in the elevator. Yeah, not, but no, Newman was also very funny in that scene. Like, I think he, I think he did a fantastic job of playing uh, how uncomfortable he was with it. I enjoyed his his face. Cause isn't his character in that scene? He's like a real kind of straight Boy Scout, like uh-huh, law enforcement uh-huh. type. I liked when she was smoking, and they were like, "Oh, you can't smoke in here," and she was just like, "I don't care." And like yeah. nobody could, they're like, we don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. I like, I like those scenes. And then the rest of it kind of dragged. I mean, there was good scenes here and there. I'll tell you one thing that I really didn't like: the What's musical that? score. I can't even really remember much it's about just, it. It's just like orchestral, lots of or, like stringed instruments. It's an orchestra. Just okay. didn't like it. Like yeah. I just actively did not like it. 
didn't really stand um, out to me. Like I, I was just rewatching, like rewatch the last scene, like the very last shot when it's a fake out. You think she's gonna stab him in the bed, uh, but it's not. It's just accompanied by like very swelling, very loud music. Mm-hmm. Terrible. It's where he says the line, "Well, like screw like minks, raise rugrats, lived happily ever after." That's the the line from that. The term rugrats stood out to me. It just seems like a a funny way to refer to kids. It seems like exactly what the type of those two people how they would refer to kids. Almost like uh-huh. a like a nuisance. Like it's just uh-huh. like a box to check. Like we'll just do that. We'll just get some kids. Like no aspirations of being like parents or what that means. They're just like this is just uh-huh. a thing that people do. Famously a uh, children the the title for a children's television cartoon. I think, you know, it to a people of a certain age it means the TV show, and then people older than that age, it means just kids. It means it right. means kids if you're like a piece of shit, you know. I don't think it must have not been associated with pieces of shits if it's like it was so common that a TV show would be named after it. It must have been like what Maybe. wife beater is now. Like if you look at the words, you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. But people <laughs> just say it flippantly. Yeah. Rug rats. I th- I feel I don't know I'm still not super comfortable saying wife beater talking about uh, tank tops and I feel like that might be more recent I feel like I used to say it in high school uh-huh. and now I'm like I don't that's a tank top sure, I, I don't sure. I don't say that word anymore oh this is interesting we didn't talk about this personnel what do you make of the tertiary character who's like the old woman that Sharon Stone hangs out with who is like a convicted murderer oh yeah i can't remember her name but she like drives to her house in her ferrari sharon stone drives her ferrari to that woman's house several times and you later learn that she's like a yeah like a convicted murderer and i killed her husband or her parents or something yeah yeah, um, yeah something and you like don't that. really learn much more about her she's just kind of in a few scenes and like only has like a handful of lines but her presence uh, means something like it's the movie like is very clear to like point it out that she is who she is and whenever she's around so yeah what do you, what the do you... function to me well I, I thought the function was to tip off to the audience that sharon stone just has a weird kind of death obsession which which helps her which is in the the column of her being innocent so it's like at that point i thought i was making the argument of trying to explain maybe why she's been acting the way that she's been acting and and, and while still being innocent is that she's just very weird and uh-huh. loves this death stuff and and associates with people that are uh killers and finds it fascinating yeah so maybe that's why she's getting a kick of, of pretending to be or being coy about whether or not she's the murderer because like she actually would enjoy that yeah that's good like if evidence. she's innocent she enjoys the the dance she's doing with the police like she likes making them think that she might be the murderer gets her off yeah that's a good point i hadn't really thought about it that way before that like her obsession with death is actually like points towards innocence potentially mm-hmm. she's almost like um living vicariously through real murderers in that way mm-hmm. 
wow, this is actually like, this idea is giving me a new idea that she might very well be innocent. Hear me out here. Michael Douglas is a murderer. Uh, that's a fact. Uh, the old woman that she hangs out with is a murderer. That's a fact. The psychologist's girlfriend, who she may or may not be obsessed with, could potentially be a murderer. And so she is strictly like living vicariously through real murderers. Like she, maybe she was obsessed with the psychologist's girlfriend because she knew that she was crazy. Or maybe the psychologist mm -hmm. girl was obsessed with her and she reciprocated in some way because she found that interesting and fascinating. Mm -hmm. And she's kind of, she's kind of like a murder, like poser, right? She's going to like the murder parties, but she herself is not part of the club, but she desperately wants to be. And that's why she's writing about it so much. And the very end when she almost kills Michael Douglas, that's kind of her like almost going through with it for the first time mm -hmm. where she's like, I'm going to join the club that I so desperately love and want to be a part of. But like right at the end, she chickens out because she is at the end of the day, just a normal, innocent person. Civilian. Yeah. 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 Which is why I think if she's innocent, it doesn't, it makes complete sense that she has like an ice pick next to her bed and has like murder fantasies. She's right. like, she looks at it and she's like, oh, I could use that, you know, mm -hmm. don't test me. LOL. Right. Yeah. Her, her attitude uh, could be easily interpreted as suspicious or just a weird person. Yeah. Well, anyways. What would you, uh, how would you rate your experience watching this movie and then the movie itself? I, you know, I, I, I think I've covered it pretty well up to this point. Don't have anything really new to add. This is a famous movie. It's got a big reputation. I enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed like, you know, seeing it firsthand what it had to deliver i thought it was engaging definitely sexy in a good way but ultimately it just wasn't really my kind of movie i'd say yeah and so you would give it a seven out of ten seven out of ten yeah i think that's fair i think seven just a safe out of, score yeah i think seven out of ten is pretty pretty safe i i had a similar sort of reaction and i want to i want to be clear i i went into this movie with a pretty open mind I was like, I'm going to be, I'm going to watch this movie for what it is and have no bias against it. But I came out of it feeling just kind of mediocre. I think that I generally really like noir stuff. This is a neo noir thing. And I think the, for me at least, noir, like the, the reason that I like it is just the aesthetic of it, uh -huh. you know, like the classic noir stuff, like black and white hard-boiled detective with the uh, you know the name on his door inspector gumshoe all that but this movie and i don't know i definitely like other neo-noir stuff but just as a counterexample, so like blade runner blade runner is a neo-noir movie but that movie is also like a fucking sci-fi movie about cyborgs and robots and stuff and it's the it's a very cool like cyberpunk world uh, so that movie, it just gets by on that alone, even if you paid no attention to the noir stuff. Uh, but that, it just enhances it. It makes it a fucking cool movie for both reasons. This movie ha doesn't really have like an ace for me. 
it's the it's just like doing sort of a neo-noir thing and it's ace is that it's really sexy there's a lot of like, right. sexy right. stuff going on in it and i just don't care about that <laughs> i did i do wish that it did more yeah that it swung harder like after like a good while of watching the movie i became kind of disappointed where i was like expecting more from it and and i came to the realization that you weren't this gonna is get the scope of it yeah yeah i'm gonna give it a seven out of ten as well i think that that's a that's a about the exact right score seven out of ten ice picks i guess oh last last scene i wanted to talk to you about remember when he's at the uh, square dance cowboy bar with his partner yeah michael douglas uh he's not dressed up but his partner is and right after that scene his partner like drives home and i th- i don't know if this is just this movie or just the time or verhoven but like he gets in his car completely shit-faced <laughs> the partner and drives away a complete like drunk driver liability and i don't know like watching that in like 2023 uh, i'm like that's so dangerous and so irresponsible why would he let his friend leave but i don't know maybe it's just in 1992 drunk driving was more normal and you just let you just let people do that no big deal does that stand out to you at all i mean yeah i definitely noticed it no qualms at all like there is no no hesitation from any party anybody yeah 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 but you know i've heard that um i think that we're at the age where we grew up in a post like drunk driving is like insanely irresponsible world people would come to our schools you know and show us like horrible graphic videos about drunk driving but i'd i'm i think in 1992 and certainly the 80s from what pop culture and just older people have shown me uh it just wasn't a big deal yeah people just drove drunk that was normal i'm watching the scene now as he's getting into the car and he really is like he's rambunctious he's like clearly very drunk completely drunk yeah that's why it stood out to me so much because even now you know there's like a gray area when people drink they're like oh yeah i've had a few drinks but i'm like okay to drive like you see that it's not a binary thing like the the anti-drunk driving ads would Uh like it to be or want you to believe but this is clearly a case like by any standards i would think but maybe not where you would be like this you probably shouldn't drive well if i could just like come up with some justifications that like might come out of the mouth of the of the partner you know you could say something like ah you know it's so late right now there's barely any cars on roads or you can say like oh you know i'm just you know right around the block no big deal i'm so close yeah oh i've driven this a thousand times no problem at all i've definitely heard that kind of language from real people ever heard the line of like oh yeah actually i drive better a little bit drunk you know i'm more careful you know i'm more aware that's just bullshit Who's not drunk that? i'm just like autopilot mode not really caring about you know just on autopilot but oh i've had a few beers in me like i'm look, i'm watching i'm aware yeah i don't know who's saying that but i would like i would call bullshit to their face if they said something like that to me nice i'm like give me your keys right now you saying that has actually made me more suspicious of you and i am taking your keys 
I'll put oh, it in I the do. I, I wanted to say just about that uh, the bar scene. I do like how the uh, the square dance bar is literally right next to like a diner that is apparently open twenty four hours. I would love that. Go find that place in San Francisco for me. I want to uh, go. To you know the- what's sad though? Like you know how like businesses close in general, <laughs> but like in the Bay a lot. Oh yeah, there there are like no places. It, it's like they're all gone. Like all old places no longer exist. That's always been my impre- impression of the the Bay Area. It's all kind of yeah. new, new soulless. Everyone who I mean, I you'll talk- see articles every once in a while of uh, of like oh this old establishment that's been here for decades is closing. So some yeah. of them kind of are clawing on. Yeah, but yeah, mostly they're gone. Everyone who I've talked to, which is a handful now, of people who have lived in San Francisco or the Bay Area, kind of pre-tech for any amount of time, they always say the same thing. And it's the person I'm talking to is usually does not live there anymore. <laughs> and they're always like, yeah, it's changed a lot. The city's really different now. And it's, they're <laughs> always really bitter about it. And they're like, this used to be uh and then they'll say like, yeah, something. There used to be fields here. I wonder if that's like <clears throat> it's certainly like more pronounced in the Bay Area for obvious reasons, but I think most cities, you know, post internet probably experience something different like that. Just, you know, the the makeup of like cities in America like changes like dramatically mm-hmm. these days. Like people move, businesses open and close everywhere. Like, even where we're from, I'm sure, like, the people are like, yeah, this town used to be really different, like, 20 years ago. Like, it's worse now. I think that's just the trend. And I think it's just related to, like, people not staying in places very long and, like, the general transplant nature of tech. Not even, like, working in tech, but just, like, the way that people work remotely now and they can live anywhere. And so no one has roots anywhere. They just go wherever... Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to end today's show with us uh, talking about what's uh, keeping us happy this week, which may or may not be the name of another segment and another podcast. What's keeping you happy? Well, I just finished The Sopranos Mm. on New Year's, actually. Tell me about it. Yeah, dude, that that what an incredible television program. Yes, completely lived up to its reputation, um, was completely blown away by the the entirety of it. But that finale, Uh, Justin talks about the finale in a fun way because what is what's his take that that show was partially responsible for establishing serialized television as like a mainstream medium and so it's like when it's on in the 90s uh it's like the most popular thing you know completely mainstream everybody watches the sopranos and then it ends like an art house movie is what Justin says, which is like the biggest like subversion of like TV expectations. Yeah. Like at yeah. every every other show of that caliber and that notoriety in it in that same position would like give you something conclusive. It would do oh, some. I think it ended service. beautifully. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm pro pro the ending. I think that like uh, something that a TV show like that could run into uh, a, a failing like a 
yeah, something that can happen where it's not done very well with a TV show like that. You know, season per season, it's a show about the mafia. There's intrigue and and plot lines about betrayal and revenge and whatnot. And mm-hmm. after seven seasons, it can kind of get repetitive. So, like by the end of it, it ends on this whole drama of them going up against like that New York family. Mm-hmm. That uh, that Phil guy, the white-haired guy. Yeah. And the danger, I think, is ending a show as good as that on a plot line that ultimately is kind of trivial like whether the sopranos get back at the that phil family or the other way around is kind of like besides the point of the show as a whole like it's bigger than any particular plot line about who wants to kill who at any given moment so i like the fact that they kind of resolved that and ended the show on a very ambiguous artsy note i just think that it was the right way to do it yeah i think you're totally right the show itself i think is you know on the surface if you because this was always my impression like looking at it from a distance before i watched it was like that's just a that's a an hbo show about the mafia that's what that is and that like sentence alone comes with its own set of expectations right but it's really a, a show about this guy and some other guys but like mainly uh tony soprano and his like introspective like journey into like understanding himself it's uh you know the the tagline is you know mob boss goes to therapy and it like the show is like surreal at times tony soprano is like a sympathetic character while also being like a complete sociopath and like very inarguably evil the show is like way smarter than uh just mafia hbo mafia crime drama yeah and so you're right the only the only way to end a show like that is to not have like the mafia ending with like the big shootout the expected kind of Mm -hmm. ending yeah yeah that last season was beautifully done i mean i think that the tone it struck was like exactly what it needed it completely demonized tony by the end i mean like they really made a point of making him seem like a terrible person who i don't think benefited from therapy one iota the i think the the purpose of therapy in the show at least according to the end is if i remember right somehow a character maybe it's the the therapist herself starts to learn about this uh theory about sociopaths that therapy for a sociopath is actually counterintuitive because it teaches it teaches the sociopath in question how to better manipulate those around him uh it makes them more aware of the ways in which they are a sociopath and therefore helps them like blend into society and like perpetrate their sociopathic tendencies like more easily and without conscience it's sort of this like if i remember right the therapist comes to this like revelation towards the end where she keeps coming back to tony despite her knowing all of the evil things that she does because she's on this crusade to help him 
she believes that he can be saved with just enough therapy and she in the end realizes that maybe she was actually just making him stronger making him more uh evil uh, which i think is pretty cool and scary yeah yeah that, that's a pretty cool pretty cool takeaway yeah there's this idea that like some men are resistant to talking about their feelings and to therapy in general but tony wasn't that at all i mean he did it he did therapy for six seven years but it never changed his behavior i think he just was he is a a violent aggressive person yeah kind of animalistic and like he is so that to his core that therapy is neither is not going to change it it's not going to do anything to turn him into what you might consider a better person yeah i don't think therapy has that power ultimately. no uh, the the doctor in the show i think thinks it does but Which all right. therapists do i mean no therapist no therapist thinks that like therapy doesn't have any efficacy or power right and it does um, have it does have power but like within limits you know and like really within the limits it, it wasn't gonna change tony i don't think the power of therapy is sort of equal or opposite to the person participating in it. It's mm. like you need to be willing to let it change you. So like therapy is just like a tool that a person uses to change themselves. But if you are unwilling or unable to change yourself, um, it will have no effect on you. And in Tony's mm. case, he's either like you know whatever you want to say about like the psychology of criminal minds which i'm no expert on that but he's either like too traumatized by his past and simply can't get over it or change or experience the world any differently um or he's like some kind of weird biological killer kind of like in basic instinct like there's just people mm -hmm. who are that they are evil and there's not a lot you can do about it see i i don't think that's what tony is i don't think that he's evil i don't think he's a psychopath or a sociopath or anything i think uh, violence is so common historically like we live in a time and in a culture and a society that is uh, weirdly non-violent that's true yeah historically but you don't have to go that far back in like Soprano's family history to a time in a place where the way he acts is like totally fine. Yeah. You don't have to be a, a weird person or abnormal to, uh, uh, to partake in that kind of thing. So I think he's like a totally normal guy who just happens to live in a culture of violence. Well, I and think so like, what can, you, what can you do about that? You can try to convince him to not do that anymore, but that's not a, that's, I think not the, what, that's, that's not what therapy is for. I think the show and, and therapy in general kind of calls into question like what normal even means. Because, yeah, 20 years ago in Tony Soprano's world, that would be normal. But only if you accept, like, you know, hyper-violence and, you know, sort of a, a sociopathic relationship to death as normal. And, like, what's normal is just relative to like the time that you live in and tony is unique in that world because he's like 
the first guy, first boss, first mob member, whoever, to make a, an attempt at like uh, understanding themselves more. Because certainly, like all the the guys who like preceded them would have no interest. They would be the person that you described, where they were like resistant to talking about their feelings and like thinking that that was weak or uh, right, ca- right counterintuitive. But uh, Tony, he is like this weird, like sort of modern version of those guys, where he's like maybe there is some utility in like understanding myself better. And whatever his motivations may be for it, it ultimately, like, doesn't change anything. And I, and I think that says more about him than anything else. It says that he's, like, just foundationally violent and has uh, little, uh, little regard for life. Whether that's, like, him naturally or him like just so overly conditioned to be that way that therapy can't help him doesn't really matter which of those it is but he he's just like so interesting because he's like the first guy who's like i'm gonna like try to understand why i am the way that i am and if you accept like kind of what the text says in the in the end it's because nothing changes because he is a a sociopath and like the therapy just helped him understand that he is a sociopath and basically just be okay with it. There's a, a lot of interesting commentary on therapy in the show. Like there's plenty of other therapists and kind of that field in the show. Like his sister has one. Um, the therapist also goes to her own therapist. There's the like- The therapist goes, go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a probably, I don't know, probably an early example of that sort of weird cyclical incestuous nature of therapy because therapy on paper is supposed to be this sort of objective sage environment where you go in and talk to a person who is in their own way like perfect and non-judgmental and unbiased and is there to listen to your problems and give you unbiased feedback on them but like the truth is that therapists are just people and they also have their own shit and have to go to, to other therapists. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it's simultaneously like fine that that's the way that it is. But in the show, it, it does sort of, I don't know. It points out the weakness of the idealistic um, perception of therapy. It does. It doesn't hold therapy up as a, as, as a 100% good it, it actually critiques therapy in a lot of places uh, the, the one that comes to mind right now is the sister's therapist what's her name i don't remember this sister's therapist all that well you know the sister though she, you the know, annoying this, one right with the the annoying sister with the rolling stones tattoo yeah 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 like she has a therapist that essentially just enables her like she comes in with her problems and the therapist is just like you go like you mm-hmm. you like like the sister has such a warped way of looking at things and she brings that into therapy the therapist doesn't know what like reality looks like so she just takes what the sister gives her and tells her stuff to pump her up and puts her back out in the world right the scene i'm thinking of is when she gets together with bobby his wife dies yeah 
he's so broken up about it. Janice is very impressed by how emotional he's being about it. Uh-huh. Has a therapy session and essentially decides that that's what I want in my life. So I'm just going to take this man and make him my own. There's also the son, AJ. He goes to a therapist in the final season. And uh, it's not such an overt, overt criticism. But like that therapist, you could tell, is just like not helping he's just like a way too stiff professional guy asking kind of surface level therapy questions you know whatever they teach him to do at their schools yeah what's that line from the departed they said like i I think you're they're quoting something it was like a voiceover but something about the irish being the only people who are completely immune to psychotherapy yeah that's right the main love interest in. in that is the is the therapist. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Love it. Love it. And that's another good, like, kind of cr- uh, nice critique on therapy, that movie, because she is, like, a very fallible person in that movie. The, the yeah. therapist character. And, she, like, cheats on her boyfriend. And she's duped the whole time. She's what? Does she dupe? Oh, that's right. Cheats on... on uh... Matt Damon. Well, she's duped by Matt Damon. She's duped by Matt Damon and then ultimately is unfaithful to Matt Damon, but under the guise of like a pretty straightforward relationship. Yeah, she's just like a, a regular person. And there's like a part where uh, Leo comes into her office and is like basically demanding drugs to like calm him down from like panic attacks. Right, right. Because uh, the situation he is, he's in is like so stressful that it's literally driving him crazy. And he's like, I need you to give me drugs. Just kind of straight up. He's like, I need a prescription to whatever. She's like, I can't give that to you because X, Y, Z. Like, it's unethical, whatever. And he's basically like, fuck you. You're forcing me to go out onto the street and, like, buy drugs illegally now. Mm-hmm. Like, fuck you. And he storms out. And then she, like, follows after him, like, rom-com style. And, like, hands him a prescription, like, outside the building. And so, yeah, like, she was just, like whatever kind of stand like professional standards that she was held to uh there she was like convinced emotionally to to do something like against her um her ethics her professional ethics. so just a regular person not someone who can fix all your problems so that's what's keeping me happy therapy <laughs> uh what's keeping me happy is a different podcast um, from our own. It's another movie podcast. I actually reached out to this podcast on Instagram. I just like sent them a DM strictly to say uh-huh. that I liked their podcast. Ah, oh, nice. Um, and they're like pretty popular. I think they're pretty young still, but have popped off. It's called What Went Wrong. Uh, you should look it up. It's very good. I will. It's similar to Blank Check in that it's... It's basically a retelling of the production that led up to a movie. And it's it's all the hits. Like, all of their episodes, if you just look at them, it's all stuff that, like, any person who's nostalgic about movies has seen. But theirs, unlike Blank Check, is much more structured. They alternate um, on some kind of schedule where one person does all of the research for how a movie was made and their research methods include uh, watching documentaries listening to directors commentaries reading entire books it's extensive 
And so they oh, wow. they have like a lot of data to get through when they present their case. It's usually it's just like one of the the hosts presenting said data to the other one. Um and the other one doesn't know anything, which is a fun way to move through that information. But it's very structured. It's definitely like written out, like outlined to a degree. Um but they have the two hosts have like a really good uh rapport despite that. It's not boring. It's not pretentious and it's not annoying like blank check can sometimes be. So mm -hmm. I said as much in that DM where I was just like, you guys have a very good, simple thesis to your podcast and you execute it very well, very competently. Nice. Nice. It's like a, a did you mention that you also host a podcast? I did. Yeah. I messaged them with the, the film hole account. Nice. Nice. Um, so it's coming from like a, a fellow yeah, podcaster, not just like a random fan. And I was like, I didn't make more meaningful that way. I didn't make too many comparisons. I was just like, our podcast is very bare bones, very small compared to yours. But like said that their podcast was inspiring. On a related story I have is that I also reached out to a podcast recently. Oh, really? It was th it's this uh, new kind of it was for the book I'm reading. I was reading gravity's rainbow and these like people uh put out this like really great well-produced podcast that had like nice guests like professors and stuff on and then yeah i just like gave them a shout out on reddit and complained because they put a spoiler in one of the episodes uh-huh but it was mostly positive <laughs> i was like did you complain in like sort of a an endearing way i was like i didn't need to know that that character died later in the book because uh -huh. like in the discussion like one of them was just like just like momentarily just gave up on like not having spoilers uh -huh. he's like oh, i just whatever i mean this is a spoiler but like uh yeah he dies gave you like no no chance to like shut the podcast off yeah, yeah yeah none, yeah none. he's like yeah he dies comes back as a ghost later no big deal i'm like okay didn't need to know that yeah i'm like i understand it may be hard to keep spoilers out of something you've already read before but if you're just jumping to the end yeah nice did they write back at all yeah they apologize they apologized for the uh the spoiler nice that's like the one nice thing about social media is the uh ability to communicate with people you admire who are far yeah, far yeah. above you in like social circles and and maybe my niche tastes are lend themselves to this but it seems like a much smaller world than you might expect with some content creators like it's yeah it's not such a big thing that your voice as an individual is completely insignificant i think that the, like, i think the a internet lot of, has made this happen yes i also think it there's a lot there's a lot to be said about just not being noise on someone's uh when you're reaching out to any sort of entity that mm -hmm. like there's plenty of ways when you where you can just be like another comment but like what you did and i feel like kind of what i did is like i'm gonna write these people like a well thought out note and whether or not that garners any response that's just how i am i'm not a person who just comments randomly mm -hmm. on posts like I'm going to yes. craft something that I hope someone would read. And mm -hmm. I think living like that will often get, get you noticed. Cause right. Right. Um, 
people care? Uh, I think about it just like if I was writing an email to them. Like there's been times uh, throughout my academic career where you just have to cold email people. Mm-hmm. And they may be more reputable or whatever. You're asking them for something. But there's a way to just write an email that's respectful and to the point. Yeah. Where you're where you're kind of like, where you have an ask. Even if that ask is just like, notice me and respond back and acknowledge. Right. A little bit of dialogue. Yeah. That's one of the things that I think I do well, think you do well mm-hmm. too, is I can just... I can like craft the hell out of a a message, like a single message that will, will have like structure and talking points and communicate something sincere at the end that, I don't know. That's, I feel like that's a really valuable skill that I have and that other people should have. You have it too. That's a skill you pick up. Yeah. Just communicating clearly in any ways is nice so that's what's keeping me happy is uh that really cool podcast what went wrong feel free to have me as a guest or both of us as a guest on your podcast and talk about movie podcasts sometimes hey thanks for listening film hole is produced by just us myself and raul our music is by w that's underscore the word double and two u's Get Film Hole wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, rate it. If you hate it, maybe don't. Thanks again. See you next time.